Good evening and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. And uh, I've got a, another special guest uh, to talk to tonight, and it's Frank Portinari. Good evening, mate. How are you? Good evening. And you said the surname very well. Yeah, the good pre- Good job we spoke about it before we went on air. <laughs> uh, yeah. Frank's an author, a motivator, a consultant and a podcaster. And uh, he's got uh, a fantastic book out there. And I'll uh, plug this a couple of times tonight. Uh, there it is. Loyalist paramilitary gunrunner from extremism to prison. And uh, that is available on Amazon. Uh, get yourself on Amazon. Buy that book. Fantastic read. Tells you about his life story. Uh, it's a hell of a journey. And uh, he's a hell of a character as well. And also in the description box below um, is a link to his YouTube channel uh, because Frank does podcasts as well and some really, really good podcasts on there. So please click the link, subscribe to his channel and uh, give him a follow as well. Some great material on there. And for his sins, he's also a Tottenham Hotspur fan. So uh, we'll be talking a little bit about football as well, because obviously this channel covers crime and football. So, Frank, just a little bit about yourself. Where where were you born, first of all, and, and where did you grow up? Steve, thanks for inviting me on for a start. I appreciate P- that. Pleasure, and, man. Um, yeah, I was I come from Kentish Town, which is in, in Camden, and I always make a, which is North London basically, and I always make a point of telling people that uh, that Camden wasn't a real borough once upon a time. It was it was made up. It was made up of St Pancras, which was very working class or very poor. And to, you'll probably know by the, you know, St Pancras, the area, it, it took in St Pancras Station, Euston Station, King's Cross Station, and a bit north of that. But then you went into uh, Hampstead, which was clearly very affluent, you know, and uh, and Highgate. And then to the south of, of uh, St Pancras, you had um, Holborn, which again was pretty, pretty affluent. You'd have to take in... Hatton Garden, for example, and, and parts of the West End as well. So we was lumped in the middle, basically. We was in the poor bit. Uh, and I think the plan was if they lump us all in together and call us Camden, we're all equal. Well, I can assure you, we, were, we definitely weren't equal. <laughs> you know, it was still outside uh, outside toilets and uh, tin valves on the wall, you know, on the now in, in, on the wall. And that, you know, uh, we was far from affluent. Was that a happy childhood? Uh, I don't think you you don't analyse your childhood too much. Sometimes you look back, you might look back on it afterwards. Uh, I think if you're all in the same boat, you tend to get on with it. So if if half the kids get on, you know, up to mischief, the other half the kids get up to mischief, don't they? Basically, if they've got nothing, you've got nothing. So yeah, we was it, it was okay. It was okay. Family life wasn't the best. If I'm honest, I. Um, my first dad, well, they parted basically my parents when I was about 18 months. And I did get a second dad, and bless him, he, you know, he, he got me mum and inherited me. I don't mean that was the plan somehow. Um, but uh, he'd done his best, but he had, he had very bad mental health problems. And, and that impacted on my on my childhood and my early teens. And, and I, I spent more time out of the house than in it, let's put it that way. Um, and then my mother had a breakdown as well. Me and my sister was put in a home for a short while. Uh, it all sounds very sorry, but you're a kid. You don't really understand it at the time. You go with what you're told to do. I've got a couple of bad memories of it when we was in, the, you know, in the home and that. But and even at this day, if I pass it, it gives me the, you know, it freaks me out because I just know it was not a good place to be. Mm. But uh, but in the main, listen, as I say, you're out on the street. 
your plant. We had all old, um, we had all the old houses where we lived. They pulled about five, six, seven streets down. You know, under the pretext of modernising, and all they had to do was put central heating in them and some decent plumbing. You know, they're perfectly good houses. And um, they decided to pull all these down, which was great for us because we spent our, our lives in the old houses, getting all the old furniture out and books and so on. And then we discovered lead, copper, cast iron, and we'd take that down our buckles, down St Pancras, and, and get a few quid. And, and that's what you did at kids when you was kids. It you pulled the stalls out down the market. Um, you try to, you know, be less of a strain on your parents, basically. What was your life like at school, Frank? Well, in primary school, I was told I was a bright kid. Uh, and I think I'm, you know, I'm wise enough to know that I was. Uh, but when you go to secondary school, I mean, blimey, it's a different world, isn't it? You, you know, the, the kids are so much more streetwise. Uh, where I went to school, a very, very rough area. Very, very rough. Um, and the kids, you know, there's always three, four brothers and 15 cousins. So <laughs> when somebody says you're getting done after school, what you was getting done, it was, it was very thorough, you know what I mean? It wasn't one bloke. So you had to buck your ideas up, and, and I wasn't a fighter far from it, you know. Like I say to people, I was I was the class clown, you know, because that worked for me. That made me popular. But invariably you have a fight, didn't you? you have to, one day you just have to have a fight. It's as simple as that. And uh, it was over something so stupid, something really stupid. It was over a pair of football socks, a pair of Tottenham football socks. And uh, I didn't even have the rest of the kit. We were so fucking poor. I didn't have the shorts or the shirt. I just had the, just had the socks. But that was my pride and joy, you know. And uh, in, the, in the changing room, the kids are throwing them about, you know, and I'm getting more and more annoyed. And, and the wrong kid, Adam, at the time, I caught up with him and I put my hands around his neck, had him on the floor. And cause his his words, he's going to kill me in the art of school. And I think most of the school knew he was going to, and all, you know. And I wasn't likely to put up any resistance. And friends said, "Go out the other gate, you know. Don't whatever you do, don't go out the back gate, sort of thing." And I'll tell people he stood there and he kept calling me names and swearing at me. And I thought, hold on, he ain't exactly got around to hitting me yet, has he? And I thought, fuck it, if he, if he does, how long is it going to? How long is it the pain going to last? Basically, you know, a couple of minutes. And I just thought him for a penny, and I, I gave him a dig, and he went on the floor. And he was shocked, I was shocked, everybody standing around was shocked. Uh, but as a consequence, the next day, I was the most popular kid in my class. And, you know, you suddenly get invites to youth clubs, parties at the weekend, but then you get a bit carried away with yourself, then you? <laughs> you, you think you're a bit of a jack the lad, and, of course, every nutter in the school decided, well, you know, you're not as tough as us, so... Uh, I paid for it over the coming weeks, that's for sure. Yeah, but a little, but a little bit of respect was earned. You know, I, you know, it, it got me through the rest of school. Basically, that was the main thing. Were you into sports and stuff at school? Not particularly, no, not particularly. And in, crazy as it sounds, one day we had a new teacher, a new sports teacher, and uh, he made us run around the outside of the school. Well, of course, when we went around the first corner, we all stopped running. He's got a stopwatch, hasn't he? So when we come around out at the last corner, we, you know, jogged on a little bit. And of course, he basically said, you think I'm stupid or something? You know, <laughs> I think I don't know how long it takes. And uh, and he basically told us we'd, we'd, we'd stay we'd stay out of school. We, we, we'll be running around next school until we do a decent time. Uh, so then you've got to run in, otherwise you ain't going to go home. So 
I suppose, you know, you've got a, a little bit of a competitive spirit. You, you don't want anyone to be in front of you, so you run that bit faster. Anyway, um, when I come back around the corner, he said, you, did you realise that, you know, the time that you did? And I said, no. And he said, you're only so many seconds behind the kid that runs the 440 metres for the school. So there's the value of a good teacher because I landed up running with a running with a school, which anything that got me out of um, you know academic lessons, if you like, I prefer to go running and competing against the other schools. And uh, from there, he said, um, "How do you feel about doing the, the triple jump? You know, the old hop, skip, and jump." And I landed up representing the school as well. It wasn't the plan. That's that's just to say that's the value of a good teacher. That's someone putting themselves out to do something for you. You know. What were you like? Uh, what were you aiming to do when you left school? Did you have any ambitions? I need to work my mum and dad out, to be honest, financially. That was the main thing, you know. Um, as I say, I can remember going to school with holes in my shoes, you know, putting a bit of cardboard, you know, cornflake box in the bottom of the shoe or a bit of lino. And kids won't have that. You know, kids off work with teenagers, they go, I'll turn it in. When was that in? You know, the 1800s or something. And I was like, no, it was early 90s, late 60s, early 70s. It was true. We had nothing, you know. And uh, I'll tell the story, bless her, my poor mum, she come down to school one night, sat in front of a teacher. And he, you know, bloke said, you know, how can I help you, madam? And he said, uh, well, I'm, I'm Frankie's mum. He said, I've never met your son. And, of course, my mum didn't realise I'd left school. I left school when I was about 14 and a half. And um, every teacher she went round, they all said the same, we've never met your son. So, of course, when she come up, she was too happy. And I said, Mum, where do you think you're getting them chops every week and chickens? I'm working in Jewels down Camden High Street. So, yeah, so there was no ambition as such, if I'm honest. It was just a case of job to job. And then you had the money to go to football. You had the money to go on a Saturday. You know, you had the money to go to a concert on a Sunday. And then, uh, you know, when I kind of got into the drinking culture, was it the money? You know, did you have enough money to, to go and have a drink with your mate? So, no, there wasn't a great deal of planning, if I'm honest. Where did the love of football come? What What was the age that you, you first, you know, fell in love with Tottenham? Well, I in, in my street, everyone spoke with Tottenham. Everybody spoke with Tottenham. Because it was the tail end of the double, the 60, you know, 60-61, then the kick in 62, winning the European Cup Winners' Cup, uh, winning the FA Cup again in 1967. So it was it was pretty much most of the kids I knew that lived in the houses supported Tottenham. It was a, you, you always get a Man United fan, didn't you? There's always a there's always a Man United fan. Uh, but generally it was mainly Tottenham. Then in the flats around the corner, it was mainly Arsenal. So um we tended to stay away from them. And when we, when we got older, they had their pub and we had our pub and, and that was it. But we played our football in the streets. You know, it was it was literally up against the gable wall. And, uh, you know, there'd be 20 of them in a game of football across the road because there, there weren't so many cars in them days, was it? And we'd literally stay out till dark, you know? And uh, so that was the actual play in it. And then I was very lucky because I lived right near Parliament Hill Fields and, and uh, Hampstead Heath. So you could play over there. Um, but of course, if you want to see your, your heroes, you've got to go to football because you didn't have the television in that days, did you? Well, you had two channels probably. So, you, you know, you might have been, I can't even remember if we had match of the day. You know, you certainly didn't have as, as much football as what you've got now. I mean, almost every day of the week. 
So if you wanted to go and see your hero, so in those days for me, that would have been Martin Chivers, Alan Gilzean, Martin Peters, um, Pat Jennings. If you wanted to see them, you had to go and, uh, and go and watch them. You know, and I loved it. And the first time I ever went over it, uh, over the White Hart Lane, I just, I couldn't believe it. The atmosphere and you know, that massive shelf at one side that they used to have, the, the old stadium. And I got the bug, yeah, I, I certainly got the bug. And um, there's a certain amount of kudos as well, because if you, I went to my first away game when I was 14. Mm-hmm. So Manchester City, the one on my own, the old main road. And um, we lost 4 0. Uh, I went in the wrong end of the stadium and was surrounded by hundreds of Manchester City skinheads who all had bleached jean jackets and bleached jeans, so it was all sky blue, you know, their colours. And I remember a couple coming over, dragging me and making me stand down with a, a fellow and his two kids. And uh, I left before the end. I got, I got chased. I got off the bus. We got chased back to Piccadilly Station. And um, when I got in the station, there was some Tottenham skinheads, much older than me. And of course, they said, "Come and stand with us." So the following week, when I went over to Tottenham for the home game, and I'm walking with me and my skinny little mates walking down Tottenham Highway, and we passed the pub. There was all these older fellas, and they're all going, hello, Frank, all right, mate, how are you? Of course, my mates are saying, who's, who's, who's that? I go, that's my mate, seeing that I was up in Manchester with him, and I was full of shit. <laughs> He'd done the trick. So, of course, when I went into work, on Mon- uh, uh, into school on Monday, everyone was going, God, oh, you want to see Frank's mates? Oh, blimey, like, you know. And the, the trouble was, Steve, I thought I was like him, and so, of course, when there was a little bit of trouble, you know, it was all right, it was all right. I mean, thinking I was getting stuck in. I, I, I used to get punched all over the place, basically. Was that the start of the, uh, you know, the you know the camaraderie? Did, did it feel like being, you know, being with a group yeah. of people that was, yeah. you know, you felt as if you were part of something? I had no brothers for a start. That didn't help. As I say, I had two, I had two different dads. So I didn't really feel like I had a father figure, to be honest. Uh, I did have a few uncles, but they were doing their own thing. They didn't have time for me, you know, kid. Uh, so, yeah, the football was definitely the camaraderie. And, and, and as I always say, that's where you learn, you, you learn, you know, who your friends are. Even people you don't know, but you know, if you take a step forward, they'll take a step forward. More to the point, they might take a step back. You know, and in the days you used to go and other people's end of the ground, you know, when they said we're going through that turnstile, well, some people went through the turnstile, of course. A lot of them didn't go through the turnstile. Uh, and sometimes it was the bigger blokes even, you know, the older blokes. They, they told other people to do it. They didn't necessarily sell. But once you're on the other side of that turnstile, you find out what you're all about, didn't you? And, did, um, did you get a buzz from it, Frank? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, there's a, you know, there's an old Chelsea boy, Jason Mariner. And I think I think he was the first fella to, to sort of use the term, you know, uh, you, it, it's a drug. It, it was certainly a drug for me. Certainly a drug for me. And uh, but he says, where do you get treatment for that? You know, you can get treatment for being a, you know, for being a drug addict or you know an alcoholic or a gambler. He said, where do you, you get cured of being a? Apart from getting nicked and put in prison, you know, to get you off the street, there's no cure for it. And if if, all, if it's your culture, if that's what your mates are doing, let's face it. Every Wednesday, home and away, or Saturday, home and away, European games, pre-season friendly games in Europe. Uh, if they're going, you're going. It's um, and it did become a bug. There's no doubt about it. 
And the more the more you um, the more people recognise that you don't run, you know, they follow they follow in behind you. Then. Or when you see in the next week, they go, "Hello, mate." You don't even know each other's names. You don't even know each other's names. You might know where, you know, geographically where you come from, but you don't necessarily. That comes much much later. You know, you might have a nickname. You know, people knew I came from Kentish Town, and and, and that was it really. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great bit of camaraderie, in it? and 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 I still got pals now from you know forty odd years ago. How organised was it? I don't think it was so organised then. I mean, if you're going back to the 70s, it was very much just hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, I mean, I always say that if, if Tottenham was playing Manchester United, Liverpool, Newcastle, you know, at, at White Hart Lane, there would be thousands, thousands of Northerners would come down. You know, I can't even remember games against me and I already didn't get in. Didn't even get into the stadium, you know, and that's when the, and that's when the stadium would, would hold 56,000 people. Um, you sometimes you'd be, you'd be lucky to get in. Um, yeah, it was it was less organised, and people went people went in different ways. You, and then you was, and then you was an easier target as well um, because you weren't all, all necessarily all together. Um, but clearly that changed, didn't it? I mean, later on in you know the eighties and the nineties, it became far more organised. And I'll describe it as, as you was punching somebody, you was getting punched from the side from somebody else or from behind. It was all very messy, let's put it that way, you know. Um, but personally, I found it was less posing. I found it was just, you know, you went over there, you had your donkey jacket on, you weren't worried about getting your 80 pound fucking jumper cut up and all that, you know, or what your hair looked like. You know, and, and I'll tell the story, I was in work one day and there were two young wheel boys, Tommy uh, and Davis, and they were literally asking each other what they were going to be wearing on Saturday. And I said, what the fuck is all that about? I cannot imagine asking any of my mates what they were going to wear on a Saturday to go to a football match. You know? yeah, it, all, it all changed in the 80s. I mean, um, yeah. in the book I did, Enemy from the Bender squad to the Gremlins, we covered, we covered the full transition of the football hooligan scene yeah. up here. And yeah. you're right, the 80s. I mean, our, our, I always say the Enemy were really well organised. I mean, they were, they were using the personal tickets on the trains, you That's know, right, so... Yeah. You know, yeah. you, you made it easier to travel. Uh, there was about a 250, 300 head strong group and they were all putting a pound into the kitty so that if anybody got nicked, they were paying the fines. It was yeah. so so well organised, but the fashion changed and the Scousers like to take the credit for that. But, yeah. but I think, you know, we all had our own different fashions and Newcastle went from the donkey jackets, which Spurs were wearing, obviously, at the same time. <laughs> Went, then it went to Pringle jumpers, didn't it? And yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Pringles, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, it, listen, it was a standing joke, wasn't it, years ago? I was, I, you know, I was, again, I've said it before, you know, it used to be our fucking Northern monkeys and all that. You know, we're from London, we know how to dress. Well, that wasn't true, was it? When it got to the 80s, that was that had completely gone out of the water, you know, going over to Europe and the and all the gear and, and so on, or when people used to come down to the West End of London. That completely changed. You couldn't you couldn't say Northerners weren't smart anymore because they were very smart, you know. Um, and so my generation, we didn't really care what we looked like, to be honest. Um, and that did change. That did change. And and I kind of missed that, but I recognise how smart it was. I do. I must admit, I, it, they, people did used to look very very smart. Um, but yeah. um, it just wasn't me, to be honest. 
Gary Milligan says, uh, Hi Frank, been to Tottenham a few times, but the main one I remember is the FA Cup game when Clive Allen scored the only goal. He says, I also remember Alf Garner taking the piss out of 12,000 Newcastle fans. I'll tell you what, he hasn't lied about that 12,000. Yeah, I remember that game. It was 85. There was 12,000. I mean, there was 12,000 easy. That could have been a Hillsborough job, that. I remember that game, and uh, we've talked about it a few times on our retro show on here. But um, did you follow England? No, not really. If I'm honest, I I didn't really do that because I couldn't have found myself amongst other supporters, to be quite honest. And, and, And I know it used to kick off occasionally. And I thought, sod this, I'm taking a risk every weekend following Tottenham. Never mind, you know, following England as well. Um, but going back to the going back to the Geordies, like, well, mate, oh, that day they just that higher road, you know, it was just black and white. It was just it was it, it was amazing. Um, I went to Newcastle. I remember going there in the semi-finals of I think it was the League Cup. And we yeah, played, it was. Oh, and it was a lot of trouble at Tottenham that night. And, um, you know, I can remember Newcastle fellas, you know, crawling under cars to get away. It was really bad. But, when oh we went up with the second leg, I mean, literally, we got off the train and there was people on the platform waiting. And it, it wasn't just football fans, I'm telling you that now. It, it, it felt like half of Newcastle had turned out as if to say, you fucking copies ain't saying a little bit up here. You know, and we, we got proper riding that night. There's no doubt about that. We got a proper riding. Yeah, I mean the football hooliganism stuff is 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 fascinating, and and it's so it reflects probably on the social times as well, doesn't it? You know, mm. I mean, especially the eighties. You know, the the minor strikes, Thatcher's, yeah. you know, Thatcher's reign um, really did hit the north more than anything else. But it hit the yeah. whole of the UK the way that she uh, she you know she ran the country, and um, a lot of lot of deprivation in a lot of areas, Frank, and yeah. that 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 meant that people were frustrated, and if they weren't rioting on the mm. streets in Brixton, um, they were rioting. And the football yeah what do you think about it? when we was growing up i mean i, I saw the tail end of um mods and rockers for example so you know my old man would say me out hey, you're fucking idiots you look and the football fighting each other and i say hold on you was a rocker what did you used to do when you went to Saturday or margate or brighton then you what wasn't you not fighting the mods you know just different just a different generation wasn't it so we, we found it was just our way of finding our entertainment. It was our identity when we found something different. Um, yeah. And Teddy Boys, I mean, you know, God, how much how much more violent do you need them to be with their razors and so on? You know. So um, yeah, I think we just discovered our own our own identity more than anything else. Um, I just didn't expect it to last this long, quite frankly. What you music know. What music were you into then, Frankman? I, I was very lucky because living in Camden, we had so many great venues, you know, Dingwalls, a music machine, which turned into the Camden Palace, which is now Coco's. You know, you had the Electric Ballroom, you had the Forum, you had the Dublin Castle, you know, where, I mean, Madness was my, was bit, yeah, just a little bit younger than me. But we were surrounded by music venues. And we also learned very quickly that you, that's where you got a late drink. So you went to the Camden Palace, where the pub shot at 11, the Camden Palace shot at 2. So you, you you know you get a drink, um, so you, 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 but all kinds of music. It was all kinds of music, and and um, early seventies was a lot of glam rock, wasn't it? It was it was you know coming out of the sort of hippie sixties, and 
Um, I, I like, I did like every, I did like Deep Purple and Red Zeppelin. Uh, I, I suppose my favourite band at the time would have been Nazareth. I quite liked, I quite like Nazareth from uh, from Scotland. But I like all kinds of music. If I'm perfectly honest, depends what mood I'm in. My girls, my girls laugh because they'll say, "Dad, one of you're sitting there listening to Sade." Next minute, it's Led Zeppelin or The Doors or something like that. You know, something real and groups they've never even heard of. Quite frankly, but I could have an afternoon listening to soul music. It could be anything. It really could. You know. Yeah, broad broad range of music. Yeah. Um, police, obviously. Um, were you ever nicked? Uh, you know, going to football. <laughs> oh yeah. In fact, I actually got nicked twice in one day. Oh, uh, tell us about yeah, that. In, in, in the seventies, yeah, it was. Um, we were playing Arsenal and. Uh, nobody asked my boys come out the road. We were standing outside the pub and it all kicked off. And I got my collar felt, taken down to Tottenham, you know, police station in the high road. Um, they kept me in right after the game had finished. Of course, I didn't know the score. So I come out the front of the police station and there's people walking down the road. And I'll sit with a bloke. Yeah, mate, what's the score? He said, we got beat 5 0. And uh, I got nicked again. Different copper, obviously. I got nicked again, and uh, but it was the same desk sergeant. He stood there looking at me, frowning, and he went, I've had you once today, and I, I said, Yeah, mate, you have, as it happens, yeah. And fair play, he put me in a cell for about an hour, and he let all the crowd go, he went, Go on, and he, and he let me go. So I only got the one charge, and he got the only got the earlier charge. And I remember where he was, it was 25 pound fine, which. It doesn't sound a lot, and I don't suppose it was a lot, but your wages might have only been about 12 quid, you know, 10 or 12 pound at the time. So 25 pound was, was a little bit of a lump, but it obviously it was better than, you know, going to prison. Um, and, but in them days, you had to really do a lot to go to prison. I mean, I had mates got nicked every other week. You know, it was crazy. Um, and you didn't always get charged. Uh, I, I got nicked up in Liverpool. Uh, I nicked up West Brom. Nothing's out of ten. You got chucked out, didn't you? You didn't get actually get charged with anything. But I, but I did get I did get charged at West Brom. I did get charged at um, Liverpool. I got nicked again at Arsenal. Um, what did I get for that? I got oh, I got a, I got a month suspended for a year. And then the judge said to me, "Oh, and I he said, uh, and I find you hundred pound." He said, "How do you intend paying?" I said, "I tell you the truth, I'm a little bit short at the moment." He went twenty eight days. I thought I said, what do you bother fucking ask you for? Yeah, 28 days, you know. And of course, what happened? A few weeks later, I got I got nicked out in Liverpool. So I knew I was if I was guilty, you know, found guilty, that I was gonna do that month straight away. And then and then whatever the what they lumped on top of that. But um I'll give you a little tip out there, fellas. If we get nicked out in Liverpool, use the word twat, which is a word cockneys do not use. Because there were three judges, and both coppers quoted from their books. I ran across the road and said, I'll kill you, you fucking twat. And I sat there and went, what? And I noticed that the woman judge saw my face. And at half time, I give my mate my raincoat. I took my watch off, give him my wallet. I said, I don't know, I'm coming home if you're on the train. And uh, when I went in the second half, uh, they said, have you got anything to say? And I said, yes, you're honest. I said, I've lived in London all my life. And I know a fair bit about, you know, London culture. I said, um, both those officers there quoted that I used a certain word. I said, I've never used that word in my life. Case dismissed and I've got £160 costs. 
Walkers on one. Of all the words they could have used, they used what they said it and they would say it. Yeah. So I used to shout at my mate, she never get <laughs> keep shouting sweat as many times as you like and then deny it. Right, you know? <laughs> but I did get off. See, I was lucky. And I was bank of rights. I mean, I was proper bank of rights. But uh, as I say, that one word kept me out of prison. Okay, good stuff. Um, I mentioned right at the top of the programme, you've got a book out, uh, Loyalist mm. Parliamentary Gunner, uh, Gunrunner, a great book. Mm. It's available on Amazon. And uh, you've also got a, a podcast, the link's in the, the description mm. below. Um, the, dis the description for the book on Amazon, uh, wow. I mean, if this doesn't sell mm. it to anybody, I don't know what will. A Londoner mm. enters a world of guns, bombs, and assassinations mm. until the special mm. branch of the police and military intelligence step in. Frank's years as a peaceful football fan and socialist end abruptly when he turns to hooliganism and British nationalism. In the mm. menacing drinking clubs of Belfast, he takes orders from prominent loyalist parliamentaries. His crimes escalate until the media and authorities uncover his secretive and dangerous existence. How on earth did that happen? How did you walk into that life? It was one of, I was, in my teens, I was a young socialist. I was genuinely a young socialist. Um, uh, I'm very idealistic. Uh, I always say this, I'm, you know, a bit naive as well. But the people who got me involved with the young socialists were, were, were nice people, good people, well intentioned people. What I didn't know at the time is they were that the young socialists were armed to work was Revolutionary Party. I didn't know that until I went to the first meeting. And what I didn't like was they were talking about subjects I didn't really know about. They were talking about Ireland, and all I remember is they were very derogatory about the British Army. And I think that brought out a side in me that I didn't really, you know, a bit of patriotism I didn't even know I had, apart from watching England on the telly, if you like, you know, uh, with a football. But I persisted with it because I believed in the socialist side of it, you know, better housing, education, health, etc. That, that did ring true. Um, but they were all very middle class. Up until that point, I didn't even know what the middle class were. I knew the working class and that was it. So... I was worried about the working class broke down the road, not the workers or the students in South America or Africa or somewhere else. You know, I was more worried about the people who live around me who had nothing. Um, so I suppose that's where the nationalist side of it came in. I was more worried about national politics than I was international politics, so to speak. But it, it got to a point where my mate said to me, Frank, it's the football or the, or the politics. And I, I took the in and I said, no, fair enough, fellas. Um, and I went back to the football, you know, I left, dropped, dropped the politics out. And years later, a fella came in a pub one night, mate of mine went down to Smithfield Meat Market, and he was right wing. Well, I knew no, I didn't know any more about the right wing, I knew about the left wing. And he invited to me, and of course, there's all these working class blokes. Folks I automatically identified with, you know. And um, this is where my addictive nature comes in, right? This is where... If I'm passionate about, you know, now my family, I'm passionate about the football. Whenever I get involved, I'll get very passionate about it. Uh, and some would say extreme, and I, I, I don't mean, you know, mind being described that way. And um, and I became I became my local organiser for the National Front. I went all over the country, marches, uh, paper sales, election time. I was I made myself busy. And um, yeah, that's what I was known where I live. Like the football, I sold newspapers. That's what I was known for. So, I mean, like, I remember going to St. James's Park 
And I remember seeing, you know, people selling, you know, skinheads selling magazines, yeah. you know, outside, you know. And, and to be honest, I didn't know what it was. I was a kid. I was, you know, I was 11. I was 12. It didn't really mean anything to me. But, you know, years later, when you look back on it, you know, fans, rightly so on Tyneside, are horrified at that. We, we, we classify well, I, ourselves. I like fellas, like fellas, you know, going back to one of the most violent incidents that in Lewisham, you know, in the, in the 70s. And again, it's amazing how much of that is born out of camaraderie. Someone else's gang, so you, you go. We all go. We all drink together. We all go football together. So we'll all go together. And um, some of those people, going back now, could not be more multiracial if they tried. Mm-hmm. As they got older and, you know, went into different circles and, and so on. So back then you would have been, you would have been described as racist. But yeah. nine out of ten people I knew weren't. They were very patriotic. They were very Britain for the, you know, for, for Britain. I'm not suggesting they never ever said a bad word, you know, against some of them another culture or, or another colour. That would be ridiculous. But it, it wasn't it wasn't so nasty as what the left used to describe it as. You know, we, we saw ourselves as, as patriots. That's what it was about. And very, you know, working class patriots. Um but I can't speak for everybody. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm speaking for me and my immediate circle of friends. And then what was happening was in London, you started to get, you know, there were bombings. Um, you know, weapons would be found every now and again. I mean, even where I lived, you know, near Amsterdam, if they found a cache of weapons there. And twice a year, you'd get parades come through London. You'd have the troops out parade um, and you'd have the uh, anti-internment parade, the Irish Freedom Movement. And we used to think, hold oh, on, two months ago, there was a bomb in London and you fuckers are walking up the road singing your IRA songs with Scottish Republican bands at the front. And, we, you know, we got the amp about it and we said, right, we've got, we got to attack these parades. Well, that would happen year in and year out. Of course, the same as the football, the police would get to know you, you know, who you are. And, um, and basically, in the end, we said, well, listen, when you weigh it up, it's not exactly even, is it? They're blowing us up and we're having a punch up with them. It's not even, is it? You know, they might get a black eye, they're blowing you up, it's, you know. And people start to say, what are we going to do about it? Well, who was we to do it? We were just all in London fellas. We, we, weren't, we weren't particularly that political. We, we weren't Orangemen. We weren't Apprentice boys. Some of us might have supported Rangers, you know, rather than Celtic. Um, but we knew what we liked and what we didn't like. And we didn't like this going on in our, you know, in, in our city. And... Um, Eventually, we approached somebody who had connections in Belfast, and there was an existing commander in London, um, and we met him thoroughly unimpressed with him. Uh, we, we, thought he, we just thought he was a, a drunk, to be quite honest. Um, we then we said, "There's no way we're putting, you know, putting ourselves behind this fella." And then the fella we originally met, he couldn't wait to, to get in this fella's seat, you know. Um, and everyone was going, no, Frank, we want you. And I said, oh, no, listen, let him let him get on and do what he wants to do. And, I, and to cut a long story, it's a very, very, which is why you would need to read the book. But, but one night we basically put it on this fella and said to him, someone said, look, we've got a, we've got a catalogue here. You can have any weapons you want. And he said, that, oh, uh, good man, good man, speak to Frank. And another mate went, hold on, you're supposed to be in charge. You know, we take a dive, you take a dive. I mean, we could see he never had the bottle for it. We could see he, he wanted a position. You know, he wanted to go back to Belfast. He wanted to go to Scotland and Liverpool and Colby and places and say, oh, I'm in charge. I'm the commander, like, you know. 
And we thought, well, he can't even if, if he can't even sit down and talk about weapons, he's never going to use one, is he? That's for sure. So over a course of time, we had, you know, we basically plotted up. There were existing people already there, so we had to be respectful to them, you know. Uh, and we we were basically the new kids on the block. We was the new kids on the block. We went to Belfast. We met certain people. Um, we made a commitment, you know, and um, and that's how it started. And then we we went all over the country. We discovered that nine out of ten people weren't at all militant. We couldn't believe they had to cheat. They called itself a paramilitary organisation. Um, and we basically identified those that were or potentially were, and uh, you know built up relationships with them. And basically, those that didn't want to be militant, we told them to swing their rope. You know, and they stayed a function. Don't get me wrong. If the, you know, if they were going to collect money for the lawless prisoners, for example, if that was their thing, that was their thing. As long as they didn't ask questions about anything else, and that, that you know that was fine. But I'm going to show you the original book, right? This is, yeah. this is the original book, right? Now, this is called Left, Right, Loyalist. And that's when some people thought that was that was a reference to marching, the left, right bit. That's where I was in the left, then I went to the right, and then obviously I've become a loyalist. And below that, it says from one extreme to the other, because that's exactly what I've done throughout my life. I've gone from one extreme to the other. Um, and then, as I say, the book was renamed, and you, 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 you've already you've already shown that. So I appreciate that. Um, so you, you you might see this one on Amazon, but that's the one you're going to get because it, it it was renamed uh, because that was basically you know I was advised that would draw more attention. So yeah, so, we then were, sorry, Mac. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that 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 in itself. I mean, it sounds, you, you know, you, you didn't have a plan when you left school. You're interested in football. You, you get involved with the football crowd. You know, you're, you know, you're having a rook on a weekend and spending time with your mates. And it, it led to this situation, but it, it, none of it was pre-planned. It just sounds, looking back now on your story, do you feel as if you were, you were coerced into it? Do you feel you're just one of these people who goes with the flow? Um, did it just seem like a good idea at the time? It's just, it's just, you know, it's a strange one. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. I am really, really glad you asked that question because it, you know, being older now, looking back on it, people have said exactly the same thing. You know, did you feel like you was radicalised in some way? You know, you was, I was the one doing the radicalising. I know that now, not consciously, and, and I say this. How many of my mates stuck by me because they were sticking by me? They may have initially, you know, been a, been a bit idealist, you know, wanted to support the cause. But I think a fair few of them stuck by me because it, because of money. And I accept that. So, I'm, so in some way I'm responsible for them. But it was always going to happen. It was always going to happen, Steve, because if people follow you at football, you know, and they know they can trust you, you know, they like being in your company, you can always have a laugh. You're never going to leave them in trouble. And you move on to something else. Well, they're liable to follow you into that as well. Um, and that's what's happening in a lot, a lot of cases. A lot of my mates, a lot of associates, you know, um, followed me. But no, I'll, t I'll take full responsibility. Because, look, we've mentioned a word already, you know, camaraderie. You know, the camaraderie. And there was a certain amount of kudos involved as well. You know? A bit of peer pressure in there. No, 
No. Peer pressure, but you you were putting peer pressure on, on, on your mates, maybe? Who, who not, were conscious, not, not, not consciously. Not consciously, but maybe, yeah. But then again, you see, if if you stand on a stage, if you go to Belfast, not on a particular night, you you know, if it gets to 10 o'clock, people be drinking, you know, and there's two, 300 people, and the lights go down, simply the best comes on, you know, 10, 12 armed men. You know, walk through the crowd, go up on the stage. Place goes mad, doesn't it? Place goes absolutely mad. You, uh, you know, someone's already been up to me, whispered in my ear, Frank, you're going to come up on the stage in a minute. So you go up on that stage in front of two around, that's two around the people. That's intoxicating. And I'm not going to lie about that. You know, and you, you know, there's a certain amount of kudos involved. And your mates are sitting there looking up at you, thinking, fuck me, he's got even more respect than what we thought we had. And, and and more to the point, what it what it also um, identifies as well that you've got the power of life and death. It's a big big responsibility. You know, you can have people hurt. You can have people badly hurt. You, you know, you've got to use that wisely. Some people did. A lot of people didn't, unfortunately. And that and that, that, that that sort of comes to light over the years. Um, but yeah, there was you know there was a certain amount of respect you got from people, and um, who knows, you know, as I say, some sociologists might sit there now and go, oh, you know, well, he couldn't get enough, you know, violence at the football. So when he got involved in the street politics, that wasn't violent enough for him. So he, he decided to join a paramilitary organisation. But at the time, it wasn't thought out like that. You know, I can understand why people might make that interpretation. Yeah. Okay, yeah. your crimes. I take, as, I, I take your, full responsibility, though, Steve. I'm not going to. I'm not going to blame anyone else. You know? Yeah, that's fair, that's fair enough. Your crimes escalated, says you know, in in, in the mm. the bump on the back of your book. How did mm. the crimes escalate, and and how did the media and authorities act when they found out what you were up to? Well, how it comes how it comes about, Steve. If you've gone round the country and you've called people out, you know, I remember going to a club. And I won't name the club or the geographical area. You know, I mean. Me and a friend walked in and we called them frauds. We said, you're fucking frauds. You're standing here with your T-shirts on or your polo shirts, your tattoos, your badges. What do you do? You know, or what have you done? Um, well, of course, we went to go back to the car. I weren't very happy, was I? I don't want to be spoken to like that. Understandable. And as they come across the car, well, you know, um, one of us pulled a, you know, branding nine water man out of the inside of the overcoat and went, we'll keep coming. And that's when people start taking you serious, then, don't they? People start knowing you ain't fucking about. So if you've gone all around the country, you've pulled people up and said, listen, you're frauds. You call yourself a paramilitary organisation. What do you do? I mean, occasionally some of them say, oh, you know, we give we give guns to the boys over there. And I said, oh, yeah. And then well, when they go to prison or they get fucking shot, what do you do? You know, sing a song about them. Why aren't you doing it? You know, well, if you're called a commander... I expect you to be doing something. Not you know, not just fucking sitting there drinking a pint, giving it the bigot in front of kids. Um, so once you've done that, you've got to prove yourself, haven't you? Because otherwise you're no better than them. Uh, and I've, so then of course well, then we did start buying weapons. And then we did start following people, we did start targeting people. And that was quite a, a range of people. And um, unfortunately it got to a stage where it was so bad. In, in, in the 80s and, uh, and, and the early 90s, the, you know, tit-for-tat stuff that was going on, your targets become less discerning. You completely change. Your whole mentality, you know, changes. You just either want revenge 
or you want to make a statement. Um, and I'll describe it now in, in, in some of the talks that I do. I call it a treadmill. You get on a treadmill, press the start button, and you keep going. Don't look to the left, don't look to the right, don't look behind it. You just keep going. And I stayed on that treadmill for too long. And it's only when you hit the stop button and you get off and think, fuck me, where have I been? And what on earth was I going to do? That you suddenly realise, wow, how did this happen? You've asked the same question. How did this happen? But you don't see it at the time. You don't see it at the time. It's like, it's like someone said, why did you go football for 30 odd years? It's just what you did every week. It's what you did. You know, um, and it was the same with this. I just carried on and on and it, it was clearly going to end badly. That's a badly. But the media, yeah, you know, different left-wing magazines um, and, and so on. And there was there was programs like World in Action, Panorama, Critical Eye. There was there was you know more of the connection was coming up between the right wing and loyalist loyalist groups and so on. So it was only a matter of time. And um, there were a few incidents. And of course, you, you know the police are going to be on you. They're going to be they're going to be on you. And that, was, and that was everything from special brass to military intelligence. And I was warned enough. I was warned enough. You know, they said, we'll give you enough rope. They sat and told me about something that happened over a particular weekend. You know, I was sitting in the back of a car with two military intelligence fellas. And they, and they, they told me chapter and verse. And the only reason I, I stayed calm was I thought, well, hold on, I'm in the back of a car, aren't I? If I was in trouble, I'd be in a police station, wouldn't I? Or I'd be in an holding centre somewhere. But I'm in the back of a car. So really all they was doing was saying to me, listen, we know everything you're doing. And uh, it, it, it was to assassinate somebody. Uh, that, was, that should have been the wake-up call. That should have been the wake-up call for me, for them to have known exactly all my movements over, what, two, three days. Um, but two years later, well, obviously, I, you know, I did get caught. How did you get caught? A total balls-up, basically. And I, did, and I did something that I, that I used to preach to other people, do not do, don't lose your temper, you know. And um, I know now we was, I know now we were set up. I know, I, I definitely know now we were set up. We were, we were asked to, to, to send a quantity of weapons, uh, seven handguns. They didn't know what it, they didn't know how many they were. They just knew there was a bag full of guns. This is people back in Belfast. And someone went up on a Saturday to Birmingham and I was meant to meet someone from Belfast uh, at Perry Bar Stadium. Well, anybody from Birmingham knows that Perry Bar Stadium is a dog track. Well, this other fellow went to some athletics park. We didn't know this till afterwards. So my contact, if you like, my, you know, my fellow came back. And uh, I said, what happened? You know, I'm, I'm annoyed. It's, gonna make, it's embarrassing. You know, we're, we're not doing our job. And he said, well, the fellow never turned up. So I lost my temper. And it was... Uh, May, uh, East, um, Bank Holiday Monday, May Bank Holiday Monday, uh, 1993. And I lost my temper and I said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. Should never have done it. Should never have done it. Mm. But there we were, me putting a bag in the boot of a car, seven handguns, and uh, out of the arm bill, just old bill come out of everywhere, you know, the armed police, you know. Uh, well, two fellas walked towards me. Two fellas walked towards me on the pavement. And they wouldn't get out of the way. And I was just about to say, get out of the fucking way. Open up their coats. And I had Hitler and Cox hanging around their fucking necks. And it was just get on the floor, you know, get on the floor. I looked to see where my code was. 
and have a cup red and hang and he, sm- he smashed me in the cheek and I went to jump up because you know, it hurt mate, and I wanted to get him and then all of a sudden there's a you know machine gun at the back of your back of your head you know bundled into a car and that was it we were playing the rights so you went to court and what happened there well my, my, my brief wanted me to go not guilty and um, I was looking at 10 to 14 years, and I thought, it's all right with you, mate. You know, it goes wrong. I'm the one doing the bird, not you. And um, I'll, I'll just go back a little bit, because I was on the, I was on, I was on Cat 8 for a while, uh, nine months. And um, one of the codes went home after about six weeks. They couldn't prove he knew it was in the bag. So the only person who could get him in trouble was me. So he walked. The Philip and Belfast, well, he was useless, absolutely useless. And uh, he could have got off. If he'd have kept on saying he didn't know it was in the bag, he'd have got off. But um, when we went to court, they'd done a deal for him. They'd done a deal. They said, we'll give you two to three years if you go guilty. Um, so he, 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 he did that. I just wanted to get it over and done with Steve, to be honest, because I thought, what the fuck are they going to bring up? What other charges are they going to bring up? Let's just get this out of the way. Anyway, it came to the crunch. They, they made a proper example of me uh, in, in the court. They made sure that the press and the uh, law students knew that I was the bad boy. And uh, anyway, brought out the blood. They gave him 15 months. Uh, well, they gave me two and a half years. So a lot. They gave him two and a half years. We'd done nine months already on remote yeah six months left and then it sort of you know, the court sort of went quiet and i thought here we go and um which has given me five years and the, the screw went to pull my arm as it would say come on let's let's go and i went what do you fucking do i'll just put this light on a minute yeah, yeah go for a minute go for it and um you should know he's give you five years i can't believe it steve i can't believe it and i go down i go down the stairs and I'll pass his brief, his barrister. And his barrister says, you're a very lucky man. When did you work there? Now I've got a prison for five years. He said, you know. So he must have told him everything. So I go in the room, there's my brief there, and, he, and he's uh, his assistant. They both turned over a bit of paper. One had 10 and one had 12. And I said, why did you work that out in? He said, because the judge cannot, I mean, I don't understand the law. And he said, the judge cannot give you a disproportionate sentence. He's already given you twice as much. So if he'd give you any more than that, we'd have taken it to appeal. And that's what the judge explained to the law students in a roundabout. I didn't know the terminology. Yeah. That's what he was basically saying. I want to, I mean, he'd already said, I'm looking down both. I, I was, if I'd have got eight, I'd have been at me. And he said, that you're looking down both barrels of a double-figured sentence. And I thought, fuck you, we got his temper a start. Um, but that's what he was explaining to the law students. Oh, and the, you know, in the media, clearly. So, um, I, yeah, I ended up with five, five years. It was like, wow, was, that was a result. But of course, all through the sentence, I'm thinking they're going to come back. They're going to come back. You know, I, I, I was waiting for conspiracy charges to other things. Um, but thankfully, they did come and see me up at, at the end of the sentence. I knew they'd be waiting outside. And I wasn't sure where I was being gate arrested or not. Because they'd asked to come and see me in the last couple of weeks. And I told them, I said to the screw, tell them to fuck off. I don't want to talk to them. They've had two and a half years to talk to me. But they uh, helped me money, you know. 
I'd, I'd, um, I'd passed all my qualifications for uh, industrial cleaning. I'd, I'd taken assessor uh, certificates. Uh, so they know I was going to start my own business. Uh, and of course, they would offered uh, me a few quid to go with it. Like, and I was just said, fuck off, like, I know what never do you, you know. But I forgot to tell you, the first man I met on the Cat A yard was someone you, you would know, Charlie Bronson. <laughs> very, very, the very, the, my first day in prison on the Cat A yard is this bloke marching round wearing a bib and brace and like, you know, up nail boots. I thought, who the fucking hell is this? And he came up, he said, I've, I've, I've heard about you and your mates on the radio, you know. And he said to me, uh, what's your football team? Oh, fuck. I said, uh, I said, uh, Tottenham. He went, oh, good man. He's, he's Tottenham, isn't he? I thought, what a touch. And, uh, yeah, so it's just ironic. He was the first bloke I met. And, uh, yeah, I got on with him. From what you could see, I mean, you saw each other for, what, 20 minutes? If you were lucky. A yeah. day. It, wasn't, it wasn't raining. But uh, it, I, I still write to him now, Charlie. I, I do write to him and... Uh, you know, it was very, very entertaining. Even even when he was banged up, he was he was he was entertaining. And uh, I'll tell you one quick story. We had Michael Sam's turned up. All right, okay. Now he uh, he kidnapped Stephanie Slater, and he kept her in a box, and uh, in Newark. And uh, I think he didn't interfere with her. And be honest. But anyway, he wanted to kidnap. He wanted to ransom money. He got caught. But he had a false leg. And they wouldn't let him have it in the cell. It had to be up against the wall outside. And one particular morning, Charlie wanted to get off the yard a bit quick. And I thought, that's not like him. He's normally the last one up there. Anyway, he's gone. Oh, this Sam's came down. I said, you can fuck up. I ain't walking around here with him. I said, I'm not having it. No, I'm not having it. Anyway, the screws took him away. Charlie goes. When I come up, there's a big commotion. He's nicked the leg, Charlie. He took, <laughs> he took Sam's leg. And banged himself up. Well, of course, the screws ain't going to go in that cell, are they? You, you do not want Charlie armed with a fucking leg. I don't know what it was made of plastic, I'm assuming. But they knew better than to go in that cell. And of course, it was all like, Charlie, you know, Charlie, can we have, can we have Mr. Sands? <laughs> he weren't having it. He weren't having it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> that's, uh, that's it. <laughs> I mean, did you get through your bird okay? Yeah, listen, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm not going to sit there and give it all the big and go, ah, it's easy. Yeah, easy. It fucking wasn't easy. Cat A was not easy. You know, you live, I'll say this, you live like a dog, freezing cold cell, getting into bed, you know, with your clothes on under the blankets. You didn't want to touch the, 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 the metal frame of the bed because it was freezing. You you got to write a letter to your loved ones. Your hands would cramp up through the cold. It was slopping out one shower a week if you was lucky. Your phone calls were recorded. No gym, no church. Yeah, they brought the cat into your door. Your food was brought to the door, uh, and you, you know, you basically banged out twenty three and a half hours a day. Um, so yeah, it was no fun. It was, it was no fun, and I'm not going to say, you know, young fellas, ah, it's all right. It was all right. I mean, different now. It was 1993. Um, of course, the first the visits were behind a screen, and then you got then you had closed visits. So I remember the first closed visit with my wife, and uh, I said, "Babe, I'm, I'm glad I got caught." And she couldn't believe it. She said, what do you mean by that? And I said, where did you think this was leading? Where did you think this was going to end up? You know, you can't be in charge. You can't have guns wrapped around you. 
and not using them. Of course, she asked the fatal question then, you know, are you telling me you're the shot someone? And I said, well, I, I, I say to this to this day, I don't even answer. I think I kind of went, is it? They go, well, yeah, you know. So that, that, that should have been a wake-up. That also should have been a wake-up call. That should have definitely have been, this is, this is the end of the line. But I went to various prisons. I got on with it. Uh, I went to Swaleside on the Isle of Sheppey. Done my courses there. That was good. That was the best part of that. I don't smoke. So that was handy because I had my own tobacco then. I had other people's tobacco. So I was dealing the tobacco out, phone cards, fuzzy cages. I say to people, I've had this chain there 20 odd years. I got that was from prison, you know, that was a bit of deal with something. Only thing I didn't do was the drugs. I think the screws were good as gold, as long as I didn't get involved with any drugs. I made hooch. I mean, that was different, you know. I used to make bottles of hooch. But if you wanted cigarettes, you know, not cigarettes, if you wanted tobacco, you know, people don't want to give you the double bubble back, so they give you phone cards. So at the time, it was £2 a card. For some mad reason, if you had seven cards, that was £14, but people give you a £20 note for it. So people, people wanted, some people wanted cash for their business, some people wanted tobacco, some wanted phone cards, some wanted a bit of everything. But someone would come in, they'd want to say a budgie cage or they'd want some, and, and I, it, it kept me busy, quite frankly. But it also got me in trouble because eventually someone wants to rob you, don't they? And um, so one night, two blackbirds come to the door. I'd literally just had a jug of hot water, you know, fight away. And uh, as I turned, I sort of caught them out of the corner of my eye. They was coming to rob me, obviously. And um, as far as I was concerned, they ain't, they ain't doing it. And I, I just launched a jug of water over them. So... Uh, wasn't pre-planned, none of that putting sugar in it and all that. Like, it's just a gut reaction. I assume they was sold up, they was going to hurt me. And I thought, fuck it, when I hurt them. So a couple of other occasions, there were similar things. And then uh, one day, a black fellow used to go, an old boy used to go to church with him. And he said to me, uh, Frankie, he said, you carry on like this. He said, they're going to call you Frank the Baptist. And uh, the name stuck. I got called Frank the Baptist for the rest of the time I was there. But as I say, it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something. But what I did learn very quickly was you can't get Nick rubbing water. You can get Nick rubbing at all. You can get Nick for throwing the water over somebody, obviously. But nine times out of ten, when someone comes to you and you've got a jug of hot water and they've got a silly little tool they've made, and you say, well, <laughs> come on, then. I know he's going to fucking feel the worst out of two of us. And it worked. It, it, it did work. What was the what was it like coming out, and how did you turn your life around? I think the assumption is that when I come out, that I'd done my bit, and that was it. And um, you've got to remember that all the time I was in there, and this is saying, yeah, I, I explain this to people as well. You can't think you're better than anybody else. So although I was saying I wasn't a villain, you know, I'm saying I'm a loyalist prisoner. All the letters that I got, you know, from Northern Ireland, Amaze, etc., from the Gabrian places, uh, bits of artwork that was sent to me, cards sent to me regularly. So my mindset throughout the whole of that sentence was, I'm a loyalist prisoner. But you can't walk around in wings thinking you're someone special. You know, you've got to, you've got to mix with everybody else. You've got to be part of the same community. Um, but when I come out, I hadn't, I hadn't changed. I still had that militant head about me. And I don't think people realise that. 
in fact, the last line of the book says, what a mate says to me, where do we go out from in? I said, business as usual. Only this time I own 10 getting caught. Um, and well, I came out about five weeks before Christmas. I went over in the February. And on the Friday night, I was there, uh, a surprise party for two prisoners that hadn't been out for seven years. Um, a bomb went off in Docklands. And a bloke turned to me and he went, oh, Frank, this isn't good for the peace process. And I said, fuck the peace process. A bomb just gone up in my city. So, you know, over the, over the next coming months, I just I just returned to exactly the same way I was. Now, did I want peace? Yeah, I did, yeah. I wanted peace. I just, when I went over, I didn't see the peace. That was the difference. I didn't see it. I saw uh, community still being terrorised. Um and I felt obliged to continue to, to defend those communities. But eventually, people proved that they did want peace. They, they genuinely wanted peace. And, when, and that was a wake-up call for meaning. And, and I discovered other ways of helping communities, uh, which will be in the second book. That will be explained far more in the second book. I suddenly realised you, you can help people without... Well, you can help one lot of people without going to hurt another lot of people. And then over the years, you start to realise as well... You know, there's, 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 a, there's a famous man, um, John McMichael, very well-respected man politically and, uh, and military-wise as well. And he sort of coined the phrase, you know, no one was exclusively right and no one was exclusively wrong. And I think if you start off from that basis, it's, it's, it's a good point to work from, you know. Um, and we need, we, need to, we need to explain that to the younger generation now. We need to say, listen, you, you know, you've got more in common than what you know. Not very good at the moment because there's, there's, there's things going on over there that's not good and you know some people are being exploited and some people are like me they, they genuinely genuinely think they're fighting for their community they think they're fighting for their country and i respect them for it believe me i respect them but i just i just don't want them to go too far because once you get caught doing something you shouldn't that's it that stigmas with you for the rest of your life you know Good, good words, great words. So, I mean, you're a motivational speaker now. You've, you've turned your life around. You've had that first book out. You're writing a new book. You've got podcasts going. Um, yeah. what, made you, what made you take up the motivational speaking? Was it was it to get the message out about your life and so that people could learn from, you know, from your journey? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, 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 you know, it is that. If, if, if what I can say, I mean, I'm a big supporter at the moment and I'm hoping to put that in more into action, you know, this, you know, change your life, put down your knife. Um, I'll, I'll be interviewing somebody shortly and, and we will dedicate that particular podcast to that. But that could just as equally, you know, knife crime could just as easily be, you know, turn it, you know, to, um, to gun crime uh, or, or crime in general for that matter. And uh, if, my, if my experiences, you know, of, of, of prison, and, I, and I've only just touched on it, quite frankly, there's some horrendous things I witnessed in prison, you know. Um, and even, and even say to people as well that, you know, some of the things, if I'd have had the access to certain things, I'd have done far worse. And, um, you know, I haven't told you the story of, you know, we were trying to, you know, uh, purchase the hand grenades and we physically saw the hand grenades. They were there to be used. Um, what would we have done it with the rather than hand grenades? How much, you know, how much havoc could we have caused? And, and, and I would have been a willing participant in that. So... I look back on it and think, how on earth? Did, how did I get to that stage? Mm. How, did I, how did I go over to punch up a football? In fact, how did I actually go from a kid that went to Sunday school, you know, and basically was taught love and peace? How the fuck did I learn that was 
you know, part of a paramilitary organisation. So I'm saying, you know, that's what I'll say to people. Be careful when you get on that treadmill because you don't know where it's going to take you. And if I can stop you getting on it, then I'll, that's, what I, that's what I will do. That's what I'll do all day long. So there's, there's lots of – I'm just, I'm just um, updating my website because there's a lot more information that could be put on there that would explain what exactly it is that I'm talking about. Um, but as I say, I don't shy away. People ask me questions. I, you know, I tell them the truth because I think that's, that's, that's the best way. The, the, the second book will show more of a transition uh, from that militant side to the peaceful side and how I help certain communities, actively help those communities. Uh, I, I joined the Professional Speaking Association uh, who are helping me to become a better speaker. If you're, you know, if you're speaking to audiences, whether that's corporate audiences, or if you're going to go out of prison or schools or colleges. But I've got plenty of stories. I've got plenty of experience, plenty of knowledge. Um, and whenever I get the opportunity to pass that on, uh, that's what I intend to do, you know. Before we before we promote, I put your website up there, um, you know, frankportinari.com. But the internet has probably made things worse rather than better, Frank, because mm. when you were going through your life, the the internet wasn't there to influence you and give no. you those signs. You were you were you know you were involved in football, and you meet somebody in a pub, and and that's how you became involved in this. You had your own politics, and that was the way yeah. you went in that particular direction. With the internet. It's quite easy to radicalize and you know change people's perception of something, um, whether it's with video or with it, whether it's yep. with the written word. Um, is that is that something we should be worried about as a society? I, I would have milked if if if, that, if this has been around in my dad, I milked it all day long. And I see young fellas now talk the way they're talking on on, on the internet, you know, and, and, and social media, and I think, fellas, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, you're, you're being too far too honest. You're being, you know, in, in what you're saying. You know, what you're, what you're, you're either saying it on YouTube or you're. And I don't really understand the consequences. I really don't think they understand the consequences. And and and, it, and I and I believe that if people are going to insist that the spotlight is put upon Islamic terrorism, do you honestly think that there, there isn't going to have to be a balance? So. You might not be the most extreme right-wing person, but we need to ban- it needs to be balanced up. The police need to balance it out. So you might just be some mouthy 16-year-old kid, you know, and you might you might have a manual in your ass about guns. That's enough to get you done for terrorism, you know. And or, or, or if you're a loyalist, and you mean well, you know, you're a young, a young kid in Northern Ireland, you're in Belfast or Londonderry, and you think, you know, my dad fought for my country, my uncle did, my granddad did. It's my responsibility. I get it. Believe you me, I get it, and 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 and, and there's respect for me. Ah, uh, you, you know, you're gonna get caught. You're gonna get caught. When they decide to throw that net over you, you're getting caught. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And the, and the irony is, when I got caught, not long after, a very good friend of mine from South Man got caught with with weapons, um, going on a ferry up in Scotland, and another. Another associate from the East Midlands, he got caught. Now the peace process was coming about, and I honestly believe the police said, "You know what? We spent years chasing after these fuckers. Let's just throw them in our room, get them out of the way. We've got other things that you know we've got more important, particularly the Islamic thing, obviously. You know, so it's 
it's not clever. You're going away. You, know, you might think you're doing good. You might think you're a patriot. You might think you're, you know, you, you're fighting a cause. And, 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 you, and you are. But you're going to get caught. I've got no doubt about that. You're going to get caught. So if, you're gonna, if, if, if you want to do something to your community, get involved with politics. Represent your community. Get real power. You know, command, you know, command what goes on in your community. Uh, and, and have some real power. Don't be sitting in a cell thinking about what have I landed up here. Um, and people say to me, if you know, if you've got, do you regret it? Because of the personality that I've got, I don't really regret it. It's just my life. It's just the way my, I'm passionate about everything I do. It was the path you ended up on. It was a path that was mapped out for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and now that passion you know, I want to direct that where I'm doing good for. Well, I was always. Well, listen, I always thought I was doing good anyway, because I thought I thought I was defending people. You know, I thought I was standing up with people. I didn't see the I didn't see the wrong in it. I didn't see the wrong in it at all. Uh, and if I'm honest, I was quite proud of it. So, and people say to me now, you know, you you know, sometimes they say to me, "Oh, um, have you ever said sorry?" And I say, "Well, if I say sorry, what about all the blokes I led all over the years?" Am I apologising for them? That's not my, that's not my responsibility to do that. That's up, that's up to them. Um, but no, I shall. You know, any means I've got to to say to people, try and you know, try and avoid getting yourself in trouble. It's just not worth it. You know? We'll finish with this question from John. Uh, he's one of our sponsors, uh, AcuteTechShop.co.uk. He says, "What's your ambitions now, Frank? And where do you see yourself in ten years' time?" Well, I'll tell you what thanks for asking that question, John. I'll tell you what I've identified in all those years, right? I've stifled any creativity that I've got. And I love writing. I like poetry. Um, I've, done, I've written lyrics for, for a CD. Um, I've I started a flute band. Anything I get involved with, it's just it's got to go the whole hog, you know. Um, you know, again, I've written a book, and as my wife, you know, rightly points out, you do everything for everybody else. You do everything for the calls. You know, anyone asks you to do anything, you drop it. You know, you try and help them out. Um, so now the answer to that question is one of, it's my time. It's my time now. And um, that, and that creativity that I've got, I want to use to give my family security. And plus get some enjoyment out of it as well. And I'm thoroughly enjoying writing the second book. Thoroughly enjoying that. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying doing the podcast. I've met some really interesting people. It's in its infancy. Um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I've got a, a you know, different range of people, a, you know, an eclectic group of people. It's not one-dimensional. There's some very sad stories. Um, there's some inspiring ones as well. And, and that's the criteria for coming on there. I say I want real people. Uh, and, and inspiring people, you know, they can give a message to people. So, yeah, in 10 years' time, tell you where I want to be. I want to be an author. I want to write a novel. After I've done the second book, I want to write a novel to prove to me I can do it because that was the subject in school that I was good at, was English. Um, I want to carry on with the podcasts. Uh, see, even through the podcasts, I'm helping people. Because I'm spreading their message where they, you know, where they, where they need help or they need assistance. Um, and although we ask, I mean, every episode I ask for a sponsor, you know, I'm saying, if anyone's interested in any sponsorship, 
But I also add now, but by the same token, we want to give something back. So if someone's got a charitable event that they want advertised, um, and we'll, you know, give us enough warning, and we're glad he, you know, glad he do that. But yeah, the writing, I'd say the writing, certainly the writing. I'd like, uh, I'd like to carry on with the speaking. I'd like to, to speak to audiences and, and, and pass on some of the knowledge and experiences that I've got. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the podcast and wherever it goes from there. Uh, more than one person's asked about doing a um, screenplay for the book. Somebody intimated about, uh, you know, making a film, but I don't get carried away, Steve. You know, people say something like that to me. I, you know, I put it away in a drawer and uh, if it comes back one day, they say, Frank, it's time to open the drawer. All well and good. Great stuff. Well, that's Frank's website on the screen there, frankportonari.com. Well worth uh, visiting that. And as uh, Frank's got his podcast, we've stuck the link yeah. uh, down below in the description uh, box. And uh, like we discussed before, when we came on, uh, before we came on air, more than happy to come on your podcast as well, mate. So uh, give us yeah. a shout if uh, you want to. You want us to? That's another thing. That's another thing, Steve. You know, anyone that's invited me on on today's, I'll, I'll always um, make a point of. Of invite them on to you know to my particular podcast. Um, anybody that is about to go on, if they do want to go onto the website within the next week, can you just hold fire on that, please? Because it is literally just being updated. Because I've written some new some new articles, and it's um, it goes into a lot of detail of, of, of things that I haven't mentioned today. Uh, and, and then there's some good messages, basically, you know, amongst that. Um, yeah. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be on a show where it's a Newcastle supporter, because he's one of the few clubs at Tottenham are currently above at the moment. So I've got to make the most. I've got to make the most of that, fellas. I'm sorry, all my Geordie friends out there. Yeah, you know, it's not many. It's not many teams below us. <laughs> you may get a point deducting, yeah, for uh, trying to join the Super League. So you never I'm know. Sorry, yeah, oh, that's not the fault of the fans, is it? It's not. It's, it's not, not, mate. It's not. It's not the fault of the fans, but. Uh, yeah, that was a farce, wasn't it, Steve? That was an absolute, absolute farce. How on earth did they think they was going to get away with that? Yeah. Unbelievable, mate. Unbelievable. But uh, we'll live to fight another day. John says, cheers for the answer and good luck with the books, etc. So Thank thanks you, for John. that, John. And if uh, anybody watching can sponsor uh, Frank's podcast as well, give him a shout at his website. There we go. I'll just name check it again, frankportonari.com. Frank, been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank we, you, uh, we went slightly over the hour, but uh, I make no apologies for that when people are enjoying it. And uh, thanks mm. thanks again and look forward to come on your podcast soon, mate. So uh, take care. I should look forward to it, Steve. I should definitely look forward to that and I'll, I'll, I'll keep you in touch. And, and thanks to all your followers as well. Thanks to all your yep. followers. Thanks very yep. much. Make sure, make sure you subscribe to Frank's channel. Uh, it's down below Thank in you. the description box. Take care. Good night. Lovely. Cheers, fellas.